Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 132 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Meredith Noble, a certified body trust provider and life coach who helps plus-size people find food and body peace. We talked about how intuitive eating becomes intuitive living, the importance of finding a health at every size and fat-positive community for being able to find body acceptance, the problem with diet culture and how it's embedded and sort of wormed its way into our medical community, how to give ourselves space to feel our feelings, and so much more. It's a really, really good episode, and I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener who just gave their name as an RD, who writes, Hi, Christy, where can I find a how-to on how to start listening to the podcast? Do you have suggestions on which episodes to start with? So thanks for that great question. And before I answer, just my standard disclaimer, which might not apply here, but it's that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So I love this question, and I swear it's not a plant because it totally sounds like like it could be just me asking it myself because the person just says an RD. But I promise someone actually wrote in with this question a few months ago and I picked it to answer today because I've been meaning to create an updated getting started episode for quite a while. So this will help me do that. Because right now we have a getting started episode that's at the beginning of the feed, like the earliest one in the food psych feed that I recorded, I think, a couple years ago to help people get started with the podcast. And now it's sort of outdated. So I want to create this updated one because I have a lot of new resources for helping people get started in a more up to date way. So the best episode to start with is episode 127, which is called Intuitive Eating and Health at Every Size FAQs with me and Ashley Saruya, my administrator administrative and community manager. So we recorded that to give people an overview and definitions of the key concepts we cover in the podcast. And that episode is really great, both for people who are brand new to the anti-diet movement and just getting started, as well as people who've been part of it for a long time, because it goes into some nuances and details that are helpful even for folks who have been familiar with these concepts. And then from there, after you listen to episode 127, you can listen to some of the episodes that we reference in that episode because we mentioned quite a few other episodes in the show notes for that episode. Or you can check out a few of our recent fan favorites that I think really help clarify what diet culture is and how it steals your life. Because I created this metaphor of the life thief to help describe how diet culture steals your life, you know, your joy, your spark, your creativity, your time, your money your health, like all of it, right? Your whole life. And my work is really devoted to stopping the life thief and helping you reclaim your life. So these episodes that I'm going to list here are some of my favorite resources for learning to recognize the life thief and really spot the diet culture patterns that show up, like to understand what diet culture is and then to fight back against it. 
So the first one that I'll mention is episode 106, which is how to stop pursuing weight loss with writer and activist Ijoma Oluo. I love this episode so much. It's a fan favorite too. So you can tune into that one to hear her share why she gave up the pursuit of weight loss, even though she had supposedly succeeded at dieting, like she was a weight loss quote unquote success story. But she stepped away from the scale and she made peace with her size because weight loss wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And you'll hear her share why. She also shares why worrying about your weight robs you of your life, like that life thief aspect of diet culture, sort of at the moment to moment level. And she also shares how you can help stop obsessing about your body and start to think about other things that really matter to you. She also shares how food insecurity affected her relationship with food and how it affects people's relationships with food in general. And I think that's a really important aspect of making peace with food as well. So definitely check that one out. It's episode 106. Then there's episode 121, which is called The Truth About Diet Culture. And it's with cultural historian Emily Contois. So you can listen to this episode to hear us discuss the history of diet culture, like the roots of it. Where did it come from? What is it? And how did it get here? How did we get to this place where diet culture is Western culture, basically? She shares how political power increased the pressure on women and femmes to restrict their eating, why we need an intersectional approach to healthcare and food access, the religious undertones to our food behavior, which is a super interesting topic that'll come back later in this Getting Started episode. And she also talks about gender roles in food and lots more. So it's a really great episode with a historical perspective. And I think that's really good for anyone who wants to understand the roots of diet culture and how we got here with someone who is brilliantly smart and has researched all this stuff and devoted her academic career to researching diet culture. The next episode I want to recommend for getting started is episode number 99 which is called How to Fight Diet Culture and Find Fat Acceptance. And it's with the amazing Lindy West, who is the author of the book Shrill Notes from a Loud Woman and a general badass. And, and many of you may know her. She's relatively well-known in the anti-diet circles. And it's really just such a blessing that I was able to talk with her because she doesn't do a lot of interviews. So I loved this episode and we recorded it in person too. So it's like got a special magic to it. I think that that happens with the in-person episodes. So check it out to hear Lindy share how she became a fat acceptance activist, the roles that feminism and body positive imagery played in helping her reject diet culture, her experience of finding love in a larger body and what that was like, and then how thin allies to the fat acceptance movement can help as well. And we talked about so much more. Those are just some of the highlights, but I think it's a really wonderful episode. And so you should definitely check that out. It's episode 99. And then finally, the sort of fourth in this little, I don't know what the word is because I was going to say trifecta, fourfecta. I don't know. This little quadrant of episodes here that I want to recommend for getting started is episode 94, which is called How to Leave the Religion of Dieting with religious scholar and journalist Alan Levinovitz. And that is also a huge fan favorite. It's really fascinating and sort of a different perspective on some of this diet culture stuff than a lot of guests on the podcast have shared because he's a religious scholar. So he really has this deep knowledge and understanding of religion that he's able to compare to dieting and diet culture. So so when you listen to this episode, you'll hear him elucidate how diet culture is like a religion, why so much modern nutrition advice is dangerous and dogmatic, and why we need to really think critically about restrictive eating practices. So it's a really, really good one. There's lots more to it as well. And again, those are some of the highlights, but it's episode 94. And so definitely check that out when you're getting started.
So I hope that helps give you a little sense of where to start with the podcast. And then I would say after you listen to all of those episodes, which to recap is episode 127, start there, and then go to episode 106, then episode 121, then episode 99, and then episode 94. So once you've listened to those five, then I would say like go wherever sort of strikes your fancy. You know, you can go to the most recent episodes and work your way back. That's really what I would recommend is starting most the most recent, you know, after these top five fan favorites, go to the most recent and work your way back rather than starting from the beginning and working your way forward. Because at this point, I have evolved so much in my thinking since I started the podcast. I started the podcast way back in 2013 and actually the first season now, which is 2013 to 2014, is only available as a premium subscription. So you can get that by going to christyharrison.com slash premium. That's christyharrison.com slash premium if you want to hear our first season. And that's a really fascinating sort of time capsule into where this podcast began. And I think it's great for super fans of the podcast to hear what our roots are, basically. But the podcast has evolved so much since then. And so season two is the first season available on, you know, for free on every podcast provider. But I've evolved in my thinking and the podcast has evolved in its direction so much since then that I think the earlier episodes, especially the first few in season two, just don't really represent what the podcast is about anymore. There's a couple of exceptions to that, like the first episode with Isabel Fox and Duke and the episodes with Katie Dalebout in season two are more in line with what we're doing these days. They were sort of like planting the seed of where the podcast would ultimately go. But there's still a lot of stuff that I was learning and evolving in my philosophy as a healthcare provider, as an intuitive eating coach, an anti-diet dietitian, as well as a podcaster. You know, So there's like all of us, and this is something that I say all the time, like everyone living within diet culture, healthcare providers start out rooted in the diet mentality. That's just kind of how everyone starts out in this culture. Well, really, we start out as intuitive eaters, and then we're indoctrinated into diet culture, and then we sort of have a long journey out of it. But so like most healthcare providers, that was my journey too. And when I started the podcast, I definitely wasn't as, I still had one foot in diet culture and one foot in the anti-diet paradigm, I would say. And so it wasn't until, you know, a couple seasons in that I really made this firm commitment. And now we're in season five as I'm recording this. So, you know, it's been several years that I've been practicing and podcasting from this anti-diet place. There's no shortage of content on this podcast that comes from that place and is really rooted in the anti-diet movement. But I would just say the earlier episodes are just interesting, but they're not as much of an anti-diet stance as the more recent ones are. So I hope that helps give you a place to start with the podcast. And thank you for your question. And to submit a question of your own for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, you can visit christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. Then if you want a whole library of answers from me to help you make peace with food, learn to trust your body, and reclaim your life from the life thief that is diet culture, join my online course, which is Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. 
Course participants get the chance to ask me any question they want in an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast. And that could be you when you join, right? You can have that chance too. And people really love that aspect of the course. One of my participants just wrote this comment in our Facebook group when I posted the latest one. She said, thank you so much for these Q&As. I'm new to the course and these Q&As are invaluable to me. More often than not, I stop in my tracks wondering for a second if I wrote the question you're reading out because I could have written 90% of them. What a treat that you take so much thoughtful time to answer direct questions in addition to offering such a wonderful course. Highly unusual. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So if you're ready to become an intuitive eater and leave diet culture behind once and for all, and you want to join this incredible community of people who are on the same path, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. We're brought to you today by Jules Sous Vide by Chef Steps. Are you a dinner party host looking for a foolproof way to get perfect meats, poultry, and fish? With Jules Sous Vide, every home cook can create chef-level dishes thanks to precise temperature control. Jewel makes sure your food will never over or undercook, so you're free to focus on your guests or whip up some amazing sides. There are more than 100 recipes in the Video Rich Jewel app to help you cook almost every protein from meat to poultry to fish to eggs, plus desserts and veggies and lots more. And if your guests are running late or your appetizers and cocktails are taking you longer than you expected, it's not a problem. Jewel is ready when you are so your food won't overcook. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash jewel and use the code foodpsych to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, the French spelling, and use the code foodpsych, F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H, all one word, at checkout. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Meredith Noble. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. This is an interesting one for me. I've thought about it a lot and I remember a lot less than I feel like I've heard other people remembering. I think I had a pretty normal relationship with food growing up. I learned later that my mom consciously like tried not to like influence my food too much. So I guess the one thing that I did have was that we were not allowed candy freely and we were allowed to have $1 worth of candy per week. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the precious item to me was that candy and my parents kept candy in the food in the house rather and I knew where it was and I would always be looking for it and trying to take just like enough to satisfy me but not so much that they would notice that someone was missing so it was like this game of how to be incremental with it and then also on the weekends when I got my $1 worth you know I'd be at the at the corner store like picking out $1 and I actually had had an embroidery thread box that had like I don't know 20 different holes you know those ones that had just oh, have all yeah. the little compartments and I would like organize my candy and like and even like here are the red skittles and the yellow skittles and I would like portion them out and like combine them and be like I'm gonna have like one of each color of skittle and like they were like precious items and I would like all day long I would ration them until they were gone on basically at the end of the day. So I feel like the rest of my food was relatively normal, but it was the candy for me that because I wasn't allowed full access to it, it just became so precious. It's so interesting how just one food being rationed like that can, yeah. can really affect 
everything. Yeah. And other than that, we were allowed dessert with our meals and all that stuff was cool. And my parents weren't ever really on diets. Like the most I ever witnessed from them was, you know, my mom would always ask for like the smallest slice of pumpkin pie possible, you know, just like that, like... It was not dieting official, like, I'm on this program and that program. It was just to kind of watch what you eat, just a slight tone within the household. Yeah, which is so interesting, right? That sneaky dieting that people mm-hmm. don't think of as dieting. It's not an official diet. Yeah. And I, I look looking back, I'm like, it could have been way worse. Like, I've heard so many people who were, like, put on their first diet, you know, at extremely young ages. And I'm so grateful that I didn't have that. But... The candy stuff I know did set me up for like like when I became old enough to like have my own money and have more influence over what I was eating day to day. Like there was definitely like, oh my God, candy, I can have as much as I want. And I think that kind of set me up for my later binging that I got to much later in life as it was always like sweets that for me were like my go-to. Mm, that's interesting. Did having access to candy later when you were a teenager and stuff and able to buy your own food, did that eventually take some of the preciousness away from it? Or do you feel like it always had that that tinge? I feel like I never quite got to the point where it was like, this is normal. I can have as much as I want now. I feel like I probably always ate more than my body actually wanted just because there was that psychological piece of like, I'm not going to be able to have this later, so I've got to eat it all now. Right. Of course. Yeah. That scarcity mentality. Yeah. Yeah. But the rest of your relationship with food didn't have that, it sounds like. Yeah. It was only, you know, I... I was a pretty average size kid. And then when I hit puberty and beyond, like when I was like age 12, age 13, that was when I started to put my weight on. And that was when I was kind of starting to hover around like the line between straight sizes and plus sizes. And that was where my relationship started to get a little more turbulent because now my body was involved in it. Whereas like it, like my the shape and size of my body was involved in my relationship to food. Whereas before that, I don't remember having many thoughts or reflections about my body at a young age. It was, I just remember so clearly when I was in grade eight, like having to buy a certain size of shorts. And that was really painful for me at the time. Mm, Yeah. So that comparison of yeah, comparing your body to some external standard. Yeah. And that, that standard kind of being set for me. Like if all clothes were available in the same stores, I don't think it would have impacted me in the same way. Right. But it was like, now you're, you're different. You have to go shop in this other place, but none of your other friends have to shop at, and you can't go shopping with your friends and shop in the same stores as them. That was really isolating. Yeah, I bet. I mean, shopping, I remember for myself anyway, at that age was so socially pivotal, you know, to be able to go shopping with people was an important social experience. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're, you're different and you don't have any friends your size, it's, it's really hard. Despite that, I somehow got through high school without any major dieting. Like, I think it's funny. I remember doing a speech on eating disorders when I was in grade eight, (laughs) like we had to do public speaking and that I chose that as my topic for some reason. I just was really interested in those issues. And I almost feel like some of that awareness and my budding awareness of of feminism and and also this home environment where there was only mild influence in that direction and not strong influence in that direction. I feel like I was semi-protected from some of that. Definitely. Yeah. 
like you didn't have the dieting come in early on and get you when you were vulnerable as a teenager. Yeah. I did some, you know, mild restriction, like some, you know, skipping of meals and things like, but it was never long lasting. And, and I, you know, there was discomfort with my body, but I, for, there wasn't enough motivation to do something about it. And I, I feel like I had a strong realization, a strong understanding that, like fad diets weren't going to work. I knew that, but I didn't really know about anything other than fad diets, I think. (laughs) So I was just like, okay, this is, I guess this is what it is. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's protective, it sounds like, to to have that awareness. It was. But also I totally identify with that feeling of like sort of low-level body dissatisfaction and experimenting with different kinds of restriction, but never actually clicking into something. Like that was definitely my experience of teenagehood as well. The sort of protective environment of the family too that wasn't encouraging me to do that either. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And really the body dissatisfaction, I feel like it mostly came up when clothes shopping really for me. That was, it was, I was just, I remember so clearly being in fitting rooms with my mom and just having these discussions and, you know, there were a few things said like, well, you know, you could do something about it or you could just watch what you eat a little bit more. And maybe that would, you know, make a difference between which side of this line you're on. There was a little bit here and there, but not that much. And it wasn't until my mid-20s that it was a doctor who said, you need to do something about your weight and you should go do Weight Watchers. Did that like have more impact than your mom saying it then? Like the, that it, it was did. a medical professional? It did. And you know, my reaction, like looking back on it, I got angry at my family. <laughs> I remember so clearly going back to my family and being like, why didn't you tell me this was a problem? Why didn't you put me on a diet? Which now, now I'm just like, oh my God, thank God they Seriously. didn't, right? <laughs> like, and I feel so guilty about having that reaction at the time. But at the time I was just like, why don't all doctors do this? Like, how could I be, I forget how old I was, honestly, like maybe 25 or something. And I was just like, I've had so many doctors up to this point. How come this is the first one who told me that I need to lose weight? This, you know, this needs to happen more. And I just got so angry and kind of self-righteous about all of it. Yeah. No, I had a very similar experience actually Did with you? gluten, like mm-hmm. where I was eating disordered. I was already restricting heavily and, you know, doing over-exercising and doing things that were causing hormonal imbalances and problems for my body. And I was going to all these doctors and everybody was like, well, we don't know what's wrong with you. Like we're doing a bunch of tests. We're ruling things out, but you know, it's hard to say what this actually is. And I was eventually diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which I do have, but wasn't explaining all of the stuff that was happening. And so I went down my own internet rabbit hole and was like, oh my God, gluten, you know, this was like 2003. So it was before the whole gluten-free craze was happening, but it was still these little pockets on the internet and these little message boards. And people were looking at the very nascent science and being like, maybe gluten is to blame for hormonal abnormalities or whatever. And I really bought into it. And I went to a doctor who finally sort of co-signed that and was like, yeah, I've read some of the research on gluten. Maybe you should try it. And, you know, for me to sort of hear that from a medical professional, even though they now that you know, I'm a health professional. I know that they're probably just like, I don't know, like, sure. (laughs) (laughs) But it felt like authority, you know, Mm -hmm. it felt like permission and and sort of justification from a healthcare provider. And so then I was like, why did nobody tell me about gluten before? Mm -hmm. Why didn't any of these providers know about it? You know, and now looking back, I'm also like, geez, thank God nobody recommended it to me when I was in the real sort of heart of my eating disorder. But even still, like having that sort of pseudo permission from someone to do it was was keeping me from full recovery. 
recovery, you know? Yeah. So yeah, probably a lot of people have experienced that too, right? The sort of medical provider saying something and it just feels like, oh my God, why didn't I, why didn't I hear about this sooner? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that anger that comes as a result. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's a lot of anger towards Western medicine that is it's like, it's complicated, right? Because there's some justification for it in certain cases. Mm-hmm. Like now I'm angry that nobody recognized my issues with my food and my, you know, my eating and exercise as being the cause of all those hormonal abnormalities. And someone probably should have picked up on that, right? Mm-hmm. But like also doctors aren't gods. Like we have to know that medical providers are just human beings too, right? And they yeah. have training and they have continuing education they have to do, but they also have really busy days where they're not able to like read up on the latest research or they're not necessarily trained on every single little minute thing Mm -hmm. that could come up or don't get any training on eating disorders. And the training that they get on weight is very biased and Mm -hmm. very not health at every size oriented. Yeah, totally. It's been interesting for me to make this transition from being a non, you know, helping professional to being a helping professional and reflect on that. And like, oh my God, like all these people I've been treating with this authority and we're taught to, right? It's like, we're the doctors, right? But even beyond that, other medical practitioners, I'm like, oh my God, yeah, they're just people like fumbling their way through this too. And I'm sure I could have reached that conclusion at the time, but you're just kind of like in this, you're swimming in it and you're just like, oh God, you know, they know everything and I don't. And yeah, there's a strong reverence as a, re- as a result. And they have a lot of power. Especially when you're confused and you don't know the answers yourself, right? And your body is is feeling like it's betraying you or something. Mm-hmm. It's easy to sort of put all the authority outside yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I struggle with chronic pain and just the number of times I've been like, okay, maybe this person is going to be the one who helps. Maybe they're going to have all the answers. And like for a while you put all your eggs in that basket and then the basket falls apart and you move on to the next basket. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I yeah. Know. It's interesting That's... the dynamic of like healthcare practitioners versus everyday people. Right. And, yeah. yeah. And the hope that they hold, right. That's yeah. sort of like that magical thinking around yeah this person being able to help you. Yeah. Cause when this, um, she was just my PCP at the time and she's like, well, you know, the only one I know of that works is Weight Watchers. And Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, there's one that works. Oh, great. (laughs) I'll, I'll go do it. I was like, you know, whatever you tell me, I will go do. And that night I went home and like went on the internet, where's the closest group to me. Okay. And that was, I was in from day one. Yeah. Well, it has that imprimatur of, of doctor authority. Yeah. And I trusted her that like, oh, it's going to work. Yeah. And within like in fairly short order, it was working, you know, and, Mm -hmm. you know, with massive caveats around that (laughs) that I will get to in a moment. But like from my perspective, it was working. I was seeing the weight drop off. I was starting to get the compliments, all the standard Mm -hmm. stuff. And so I was like, oh, yeah, she's right. And then I started spreading the gospel, (laughs) like telling all my family. Like that was when I got mad. I was like, why didn't you tell me this sooner? And you should do this, too. And yeah started causing more harm, obviously. Right. Yeah. Because what ended up happening, right? It's like, that was probably a short-term yeah. situation. Yeah. I, you know, that was, beca- I, I think, again, for me, it was my first, like, real attempt. And I feel like those first attempts are often more successful for people and that it just gets harder and harder and harder. So for me, it just came off quite quickly and I hit my quote unquote goal weight within, I don't know, six to eight months or something. And I was like, this is great. But then just like, as I started getting closer and closer to that goal weight, binging started happening for me. And then it was like, oh God, 
maybe this isn't all it's cracked up to be. Actually, I'm not even sure I had that thought at the time. It was more like, oh my God, I'm failing. This is terrible. I'm a horrible person. Here I am again with no willpower. Those kinds of thoughts. You blamed yourself. Absolutely. And had binging ever occurred for you before? You know, I feel like I've thought about this a lot too. Like, was I binging before or not? And I think I was, I think I was having kind of smallish binges. Like I think that because of that candy restriction, like there were definitely times when I'd be going home and like having a fair amount of candy, but it didn't have quite the same feeling behind it. There was a ton of guilt behind it that now I recognize as like emotional restriction that was like driving that happening. But when I also was adding physical restriction through the diet, that just it it all exploded at that mm-hmm. point and just took on a completely new turn. And that was, that was when I truly started feeling out of control and the shame, like this low level shame of like, Oh God, I'm eating this stuff and it's probably not good for me. Just also skyrocketed because mm-hmm. it was just like, I'm completely out of control. I can't trust myself. I need to hide this from everyone in my life. Mm, yeah. So it was more isolation. Yeah. Yeah. I had my little drawer in my desk and that was where everything was. And, you know, I just remember so clearly like just having to be on guard when it was happening and keeping that corner of my eye, like looking to see like, is my husband about to come into the room and is he about to witness this? And he can't witness this. Wow. Yeah. That's so sad. Yeah. I look back and at the time I... You know, I was just so in it that I couldn't kind of get that outer perspective like, whoa, this is totally messed up. I was just so in the shame that, you know, it was just a spiral. And it it was planned binges, but also, like, I just remember, you know, in Weight Watchers, you have, like, your certain points. And I just remember being completely out of points and being completely out of control. And, like, I was trying so hard to only keep certain things in the house. I remember, like, binging on on things that, we're not particularly palatable just out of desperation. Mm. Oh God, I can totally identify with that. Yeah. Yeah. Like when you don't have anything in the house, but your body is driving you towards, Mm -hmm. you know, those foods that usually sweets or carbs or Mm -hmm. the things that you are restricting. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting how it, how diet culture just makes us blame ourselves. Yeah. It's like, it doesn't even occur to you. Right. Yeah. It's so twisted. (laughs) So bad. Yeah. I mean, nothing else on the market is like that, you know, it's really fascinating to think about how dieting, you know, and especially like a program like Weight Watchers, an official diet, it's like, that's a product, you know, or service or whatever you want to call it. It's something that you're buying into and expecting results. Mm -hmm. And like, if anything else that you bought did that to you you'd probably be more likely to blame the thing. Yeah. You know? It's the one one product where if it fails, the user blames themselves yeah. and just keeps going back and back and back. I remember near the end of this first like Weight Watchers thing, I don't know how close I was to my goal weight, but I remember here someone, I have no idea who it was, floated the stat of like only one in 20 or like whatever, 95% of people are going to put the weight back on. And I remember so clearly being like, that is not going to be me. Like I have this under control. I know everything I'm doing. I'm the exception. I'm the exception. And I look back and I'm just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, but I had, I was in such, I was in a place where like, I had to make that be true in my mind because otherwise I invest, I had invested all of this 
time and money and emotional energy on on what you know and right. that, and they bank on that that's, totally that's what they want to happen yeah when you're really invested in something you it's hard to walk away from without a lot of reckoning first yeah yeah and without sort of really obvious like black and white evidence that this is not working and i think it's it's sort of gray when you're binging because of a diet right because it's like for a while that reaction is not happening like mm -hmm. for a while the restriction you know the the sort of pure restriction works for most people it's like however long it takes you know and it's not always just overnight so you can be mm -hmm. like well for that 6 months or that 3 months or whatever the period of time is that it worked it's like it can't be the diet because it wasn't doing that to me then. Yeah. You know, so it's sort of this delayed reaction, which makes total sense with the body's physiology, right? Because we're designed to be able to withstand famine for a certain period of time until our bodies really kick into high gear of like, all right, let's, let's stop this. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting for me because early on in my Weight Watchers experience, I found community and a bunch of these young women like myself, we all created blogs and we were all writing about our weight loss journeys and we were on each other's blogs every day. Like we were just commenting and like we had like everyone like visiting each other and just to go back and look at those now, like from this other perspective, I'm just like, oh my God. So like I actually have like all these writings of just like this really tortured person who was really struggling. And I, I, there was a moment when I actually decided I can't have everything public on this blog anymore. I have to create a private blog. And that was the point where the binging started because oh, wow. it was like, this is so bad. I need to keep this behind closed doors. And I would let in my very close Weight Watchers friends and we would still be supporting each other. But yeah, it's strange to go back and read all that pain was happening now. Yeah, I bet. And I think it's interesting too, this idea of community and, and support from other people, right? Because that's one thing about Weight Watchers, but also about like these unofficial diets or lifestyles, quote unquote, that people go on is like, they do have a community around them, right? Mm -hmm. People are connecting with each other over this thing. And I've seen it with people doing like Whole30 or Paleo or whatever it is, right? Like the modern version of that. It's like people are on message boards sharing like, oh, this, I, you know, I'm binging on like dates or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, and what do I do about this and getting support from other people. And there's something comforting and valuable, I think, about being able to share these experiences of disordered eating with with other people and have them support you and like get it right yeah. and, and validate it. So and particularly for me, like it was the first time I had been in contact with people who were in larger bodies, like myself, and and were able to talk about these things. Like we just didn't really talk about it in any of my friend circles. In fact, like when when I was in university, I was in engineering school and the vast majority of the engineering students were, were Chinese, Chinese Canadians. And so I, all my roommates were these Chinese Canadians who had very normal relationships with food and were in very small bodies. And I had no community at all. I was just like the fat white girl in all the pictures. And for me, having that community around the weight loss was just like, oh my God, there's other people like me who are also struggling with this. And, and that was in its own like weirdly disordered way it was it was also very comforting and like i'm not the only one i bet yeah yeah i think that's part of what keeps people coming back to diets too right or to disordered eating of any kind like it's it's not all 
bad, right? It's not all like the binging and the Mm -hmm. feeling out of control. It's also like feeling hopeful or feeling connected Mm -hmm. or feeling like you have a community. Mm -hmm. And I think we need, you know, when people are recovering from dieting and sort of realize like, okay, the bad outweighs the good, right? And the stuff that isn't working for me with this really just isn't working anymore and I can't do this anymore. Like you still need to fill those gaps. You still need to find community. You need to find places where people can get it and support each other Mm -hmm. and where you have people you can identify with, right? Yeah. People who are, who are sharing your experience. Yeah. Like as you're transitioning out of it, you need to find replacement for that community, which is so, you know, like there's so many amazing opportunities for that on Facebook and beyond yeah. now. But, but yeah, for me, it was just like, oh my God, other people get this struggle. And yeah, it was really important at the time. Yeah. I can imagine. So what happened then? How long were you sort of in that limbo of like, Near the end of Weight Watchers for me, I started to look at like Weight Watchers is constantly evolving with their like formula and stuff. And the formula that was intact when I was doing it was like, it was, this was the other totally messed up thing about it was that it would, it had a preference for foods that were higher fiber. And then it didn't want you to eat foods that were higher in fat. Oh boy. And so like, everyone to try to optimize to like have as much food in their belly as possible would be eating like the super low fat, like high, high fiber stuff. And I think near the end, I started to reflect on that. I started to learn more about nutrition. I was like, wait, like my body needs fat. Like, why are they demonizing fat in this way? And as I learned more about that, that enabled me to be like, you know what, this isn't working. And then I was like, maybe it's just that I need more fat. And then I was like, I'm going to like, just eat clean. (laughs) So that was like the eat clean whole foods path. And at the time, I believe I was struggling with chronic pain and I was seeing a Pilates teacher who also happened to be a holistic nutritionist. She's like, you know, I can, we can do an elimination diet and like see if that helps your inflammation and helps your pain. And so that just like gave me this like introduction to like all these, you know, this whole other world of like food combining and acid and alkaline and just all this stuff, you know, and nonsense, nonsense, absolute nonsense. But I basically was was taught how to be, you know, another type of disordered eater, right? right? From this extremely well-meaning professional. And it just kind of continued like that. Then I, you know, found that didn't work and I found another food coach and and another food coach. And I worked with someone for like God, the amount of money I spent on this, like just reflecting, like I was having all like all this private coaching, I was working with this other holistic nutritionist later. And eventually she said, you know, clearly this isn't working. I only know of one other alternative. Oh God. <laughs> sent me to this, this program that was based on bodybuilding oh. and was even more intense and more disordered. And, you know, I won't go into all the, you know, everyone knows all this crap is out there and it's, it's really incredibly problematic. But I had come down off the end of that. I had to leave early because my pain was a problem. And also I was just the shame and the binging just all cycling around and were all these body measurements we had to take. It was just horrible. And I was just in this hole of like not doing anything. I was just like eating whatever I wanted and because I just didn't know what else to do. And I was just so despairing at that point. And that was around the time that this really hateful video about fat people was published on YouTube. Mm, yes. <laughs> and I wrote an essay about it. And 
it was really scary because I was, it was basically called Dear Non-Fat People. And I shared it with everyone I knew. And like before I knew like a thousand people had read it. And it was just all about like what it's like to be in a larger body and to try to create some empathy in these people who had never had the experience of being in a larger body. And it was through that video that I found Haze because someone someone was like, hey, you might be interested in this health at every size stuff. Because it sounds like what you, what you were doing was sort of coming to fat acceptance. Yeah, I don't know if I... I don't know if it was pure... I don't think it... I don't even know if it was fat acceptance at the time. It was just like, if you haven't tried to lose weight before, like you don't have any idea what it's all about. And I managed to like find some research to say... Like it was research we use in the Hayes community now, like saying, you know, it's it's possible to be in a larger body and be healthy and, you know, all these kinds of things. So it was like proto-haze for me. <laughs> it was just like these tiny little stepping stones. Yeah, I was like partway there, but not like I was missing 99% of it. But then once someone told me that this existed and I started reading about it, it was just like, oh my God, like I was so ready because I had just gotten to the end of my rope. And I was just like, I know I can't do that anymore. And everything I read was just like, yes, this validates everything about my experience. Like, oh my God, I was actually having a very normal reaction to these extremely disordered things that I was doing. Yeah. So you were kind of having that experience of validation that you maybe had with the Weight Watchers community too, but in a way that was actually a much healthier much validation. Healthier. <laughs> yes, exactly. Really supporting you. Yeah. And it was like, oh, this is why it hasn't been working. It hasn't been working because it doesn't actually work. Right. And no one ever told me that. Oh, that's so liberating too, yeah. to really, really internalize that message. Mm-hmm. I was just so ready for it at that mm-hmm. point. And I know not everyone is when they first come across Haze. And, you know, lots of my clients have maybe danced with it at times before and just weren't quite ready and needed to try something else to, like, really convince themselves that, no, this isn't working for me. But for where I was at the time, it was like, oh, my God, tell me more. Tell me more. Yeah. No, you really do have to be ready. I think I heard about Haze like, five years before I actually committed to doing it in my practice. And it just was like, you know water off a duck's back. Like Mm -hmm. it was not sticking at that point, you know, Mm -hmm. and I had to go through my own, you know, personal and professional journey to get to a place where I was like, yes, this is right. Yeah. Yeah. And I just happened to be one of those lucky ones that like discovered it at the time that it was right for me. But yeah, but it's perfectly okay to like not have that be the case and to have to do some more exploration and, you know, Mm -hmm. come back to it repeatedly until it's like, no, actually I'm in a place where this, this is what makes sense for me now. Totally. Yeah. I hear from a lot of people listening to the podcast that that's what they do, you know, that they'll Mm -hmm. sort of dance around it or they'll listen for a while and take in the ideas and fight with them. And, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes people are very, I mean, I was too, when I first heard these ideas sort of angry about them Mm -hmm. and like, you know, I think there can be this sense of betrayal almost that like, this is undermining everything you thought you knew. And so you get mad at the new paradigm sometimes Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, getting mad at the old paradigm, but there's also this anger towards the old paradigm maybe too. And it's just, and just like total confusion, it's really. Confusing. Right? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's so confusing. Yeah. yeah. So I think people need their their time to really circle around it. Yeah. And, and sort of get to feel like, okay, 
I really know deep down that diets are not for me, that this is not the answer and I need to find another way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what you're basically describing is that grief process, Mm -hmm. right? And like spending a lot of, it's so normal to spend a lot of time like dancing around that denial or the bargaining or like I've heard so many people say like, well, what if I just lose weight and then do intuitive eating or those, those sorts of things where we're just kind of just grappling with it, which is like, it takes some serious time to grapple. It really does. And find your way with that. And yeah, I think, you know, the fact that one last diet or just losing some weight and then doing intuitive eating doesn't actually work doesn't really matter when you're in that space, right? It's like to even be able to hear and truly internalize like, no, it doesn't actually work and to believe that. I think you have to be in a place to really be open to hearing it, you know, Mm -hmm. like you have to be in a place to take in something different. Yeah. And we like thinking about change, right? And like the idea that change happens when it's it's too hard to stay where you are. It's it's harder to stay where you are than to move forward. Right. And for me, like I was just so distraught about the whole thing and in this low point that it was like, okay, there has to be something better. But you know, if you haven't hit that place yet, then sometimes it takes some time. Yeah, absolutely. And so you were sort of really ready, it sounds like because you had spend so much money, spend so much time and gone through a lot of really disordered, like distressing situations with it too. It sounds mm-hmm. like. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, like, I, it was probably eight or nine years. I discovered it in my early to mid thirties and I had started the Weight Watchers in my mid twenties. So yeah, upwards of 10 years. Yeah. So you did your time. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now like that's the time for everyone, right? Because there's people who've been doing it for decades. Of course. And then there's yeah. people who've been doing it for like a year and they're like, no, I can't anymore. And it's no one's fault, like whatever, wherever they are on that. Yeah. Like everyone has like, if my family had been different, I very easily could have been in this for 20 years plus. And it's all just luck or bad luck or just the way things are and there's nothing no one's at fault for any of it no like you like you as the person experiencing aren't aren't at fault for any of it yeah that's a really good point like it's not your fault that you went through what you went through Mm -hmm. and I think too privilege and oppression play a role in this too right Mm -hmm. like if I mean we're just at the beta conference and there was an amazing presentation of some research showing that like eating disorder behaviors and diagnosable eating disorders are more likely in people who are food insecure, mm-hmm. right? Like that that's a that's a sort of risk factor for eating disorders. Yeah. It's really never talked about enough because it's not about weight and shape concerns. It's about not having access to food. And yeah. when you don't have regular access to food, that can create that restrict binge cycle that we were talking about that diets create, but it's like from a totally different origin. Yeah. The motivation is completely different. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and that's that's one factor I think that can make it take a lot longer for people as if you grew up with food insecurity, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I was privileged in pretty much every way. You know, I had teachers for parents. We were doing fine financially, a very loving home with without neglect, without abuse, you know, even my size privilege, you know, like I I wasn't really a chubby child until I hit puberty. And and that that's all really, really different for for many people. And I acknowledge that I had it like quite easy compared to many without those privileges. Yeah, same. I I like to acknowledge that. That's another thing I really appreciated about the Beta conference too is like every speaker started by acknowledging their privilege. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's that's very important, you know, and relevant to sort of say like our experiences might be different than other people's experiences because of privilege, because of the intersecting identities that 
we and other people hold. And so mm-hmm. that's everybody's story is different. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not necessarily extrapolatable. Right. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's journey is going to be different and some are really messy and, mm-hmm. you know, or they're all messy, but some are messier than others, I guess. And, and that's okay. Yeah. Know? It's just going to take as long as it takes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So when you found Health at Every Size and started to explore that world, how did it change your relationship with food and your body? Oh my God, it changed everything. Like, honestly, I, (laughs) that as soon as I learned about the concept, because at the time I learned about it, I was not physically restricting. I was just eating things and feeling like crap about it. (laughs) You know, I remember I was working in Manhattan and I would go out for lunch and I would just spend time like wandering around the restaurants, like, what am I going to eat? And I kept saying like, I want to eat mac and cheese, but oh my God. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I just buy it and feel horrible about it. And then once I learned about health at every size and all of these concepts and learned that emotional restriction was a thing, it was like, oh my God, if I don't feel guilty about this, like things could be completely different. Like that's, that's kind of, that was kind of the linchpin. And I remember going to my husband and saying like, I found this thing and, you know, I'd, I'd read intuitive eating at that point, or I was starting to read it at least and was explaining to him, like, I need to put this goal of weight loss on the shelf Actually, I kind of need to like put it in a pit and burn it. (laughs) Like I forget what I said to him exactly, but I was just like, I need to give up on this. In order to like even begin experimenting with this, I need to be able to put that away. And I need to be to know that you're okay with that. And we had a long conversation about it and basically came that, you know, I was gonna try this. Yeah. And as soon as I dove in, it was just like, oh my God, like this is what makes sense to me. Like it all just made so much sense. And I like dove in and did a group program and I found a private person to work with. And yeah, it just all made so much sense. And I hesitate to say this, like, because everyone's experience is so different. Like for me, I was so ready that it actually was a fairly smooth process for me. You know, I I remember I had some like, but what about, you know, this coach I had, she has this new thing. And I remember like having to kind of work through, like kind of walk through step by step into what she was doing and be like, no, it doesn't make sense for these reasons. So Mm -hmm. like, I, I still had some like, but what ifs, but food wise, it just made so much sense to me. And the body acceptance stuff was slower. I felt like for me, like I was able to put the weight loss to the side and I recognize also my privilege in doing that. Like as a small fat person, it was easier for me to put that aside than potentially being someone in a larger body. But I was able to like put that aside enough to work on the food and then the body stuff was slower and has been a more much more gradual process. And for me, the biggest shift in the body happened when I found community mm. and found both online community, but increasingly like in-person community and fat friends, honestly. Like just being in community with these people who were also they accepted their own bodies, they accepted my body. And I could just be in this space where like 
it just didn't, my body did not matter at all. And that was what made it increasingly possible to like start to cultivate that own, my own body acceptance. Yeah. Like they modeled it for you and sort of gave it to you so that you could start to give it to yourself. And it's not even like they were a hundred percent there either. They were probably at a similar place to me, but there was something about like, we were all just working in like working on our own stuff. And I often feel like acceptance of other people's bodies is a stepping stone to acceptance of, of your own body. So we were probably all kind of in that place where we could respect and admire each, you know, admire is like maybe not quite the right word, but just appreciate each other's bodies and, and be really honest, you know, neutral to, to really positive about each other's bodies. And then that created the space for us to do our own inner work. Yeah. That's kind of the way I think about it. No, I think that's so that's so true of body acceptance and sort of general compassion and and you know, like I think about the connection between that and like self-compassion, you mm-hmm. know, giving yourself compassion for whatever it is in life is a lot harder sometimes than giving compassion to other people. So right? much. Like that comes so much more easily. <laughs> and I think it's yeah. the same with body appreciation, body respect, body acceptance. Like, you know, you can start to sort of appreciate other people's bodies or, you know, value other people's bodies without necessarily being at that place for yourself yet. But mm-hmm. practicing that kind of opens the gates for, mm-hmm. for you to do it for yourself. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's not easy necessarily. Like the that whole question in self-compassion of like, you know, what would you say to a friend who is feeling this? Like, right. it is so, like I know exactly what I would say to a friend, but I don't know. <laughs> Reflecting that back towards myself has not always been an easy thing. And the same with body acceptance is it's not easy. But just the longer I was in that space with those people, just gradually and gradually and gradually it became easier. Yeah, totally. What do you think it was about what they offered you that that helped? I think it was less time being so self-aware of my own body. Like I was I was able to kind of forget my body in those spaces and I wasn't as I didn't have to be as self I didn't have to worry so much. Like out in the world when I'm in a larger body this still happens, I will say, less so. But like it used to be like I was just so hyper aware of my body in relation to other people's bodies. Like I remember going into a grocery store and being surprised that a person in a smaller body held a door open to me. Like I was I was just so hyper aware of my body in relation to others. And when I was in these spaces with other people in larger bodies, I just knew that I I didn't have to think about that. <laughs> and then I think just those periods of time, not thinking about it, just created the space for that healing, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. You know, it was just like my brain could just relax around them and I didn't have to be hypervigilant. And that just kind of allowed space of like, wow, I can just be me and I don't have to like be constantly on guard or or just aware of what my body is in space. Yeah, there's so much power in being able to just forget your body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's we don't have like we don't owe anyone thinking about our bodies all the time in a positive or negative way. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But it's it's really hard to get to that point when you're in, you know, society and community that is always judging your body, right? Yeah. So there's got to be something so profoundly healing about being in a different space that that doesn't have that lens. Yeah, I, I I just think that's so true. I think like a lot of other 
issues like this, it's easier to remove yourself from the people who are influencing you in a negative way. But diet culture is everywhere. We are just swimming in it all the time. And I was able to create these like diet culture free little spaces. And I just, I, I would so highly recommend that to other people who are on this journey. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that online is always, is always like online is fantastic. Like Facebook groups were so healing to me personally, but I feel like when I was able to find that in-person, like truly embodied being in space with other bodies experience, that was kind of what took me the last, last bit of the way. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always, I'm so, so passionate about helping people find and create community Mm -hmm. and, you know, helping people think about like, could you create a book club? Like one of my friends has created a book club in Portland where we all gather and talk about this stuff or clothing swaps or just, just people who want to just talk about this stuff. And it's not that you have to stay there forever and just constantly talk about health at every size for the rest of your days. It's just like (laughs) creating this space for you to, you know, go through your process. Yeah. And, you know, I dearly hope that those friends who I went through my process with are going to be friends forever, but we don't always have to be talking about our bodies <laughs> either. Right. Your yeah. relationship can move into something different. You yeah. Can, you can kind of go beyond that at a certain point. Or yeah. Circle back to it when you need to, but it's not just about talking about your body all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think there's this like interesting dialectic between thinking enough about your body and being aware enough about your body to do the work on accepting it and also to take care of it, right? Mm-hmm. To like recognize its needs, to think about your comfort and like clothing yourself or going to the doctor, or, like the things that you need to do for your body's sort of, you know, well-being, but then also forgetting about your body enough yeah. to like go about your life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I feel like that's being able to to know when you're at a healed point and and start bringing in other things that so you're not just so hyper focused on this this one part of your life. But I think it does require extra focus when you're like starting to do this stuff and that's completely natural too. But just yeah. like, little by little like finding your way through it and bringing in other things to make your life rich. Yeah, it reminds me of like any skill that you learn, you know, like learning to drive. I remember I was so hyper focused on it when I first started learning to drive, like hands at 10 and two, mm-hmm. and like, <laughs> you know, put your turn signal on and everything was so much thought. Mm-hmm. And now I can drive and like do a million other things at the same time. And it's no thing. Yeah. Driving is just so second nature, you know? Yeah. It's such a good analogy. And I think intuitive eating in particular is like that for people. Like yeah. I think when people often, when they start doing it, they're like, oh my God, is it always going to feel this way? I'm just thinking so hard all the time. Like, what do I want? Like, am I full? Am I hungry? Like, it's just your brain has to go through it in such a like logical order and after enough practice like helping to reassure people that after enough practice it just becomes like ingrained and you're not thinking about this like I'm yeah like we're, I'm sure we're both at the point where it's just I'm just eating and like you know I'm just choosing what I want and it's not the mental effort is right. not what it used to be yeah for sure it's like it's so easy to deal with food now because it's just something you think about however many times a day you're hungry or what, you know, when you start to think about food and what's satisfying, but it's not, 
this constant like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Yeah. Let me get the exact right thing. You but know? at the beginning, when you're in that, you're like, oh God, is this what it's going to be right. like forever? I don't want this, this either. Is like, hard. this isn't, <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe it's not as bad because there isn't the shame that was there before, but it's still, you know, the beginning yeah. of, of it is, is more focused and more effort. Yeah. And I think it's tough because you also don't have the body acceptance part quite there mm-hmm. yet either, right? So it's like you're hyper focused on food and what you want to eat and what, you know, whether you're hungry or full. And that can also be, you know, vestiges of the diet mentality too, right? Right, that kind of hyper focus on like, oh my god, am I full yet? I can't mm-hmm. be too full, right? And that where's mm-hmm. that coming from? Mm-hmm. So kind of like rooting out all of the diet mentality stuff, and then not accepting your body yet, and sort of having this fear of like, what's going to happen to my body through this process? Am I going to keep gaining weight forever? Like all of that stuff. Yeah, and that is that. Like I, I'm always finding myself in this dance with my clients of like food, body, food, body, because they're so interrelated. Like if you are not in a place to put the body stuff aside and you have to get to a place where you're okay with putting the body stuff aside. And that can be incredibly, incredibly scary. I have so many clients who are just, you know, afraid of just constantly gaining and never ending. And there's so much work to be done there. So I I find myself kind of dancing between them a lot because they're just, yeah, they depend on each other. Totally. I loved your piece that you wrote about mourning the loss of the thin ideal, which Mm -hmm. I feel like has some really good like practices for that, right? That sort of dance of like letting go enough of the body stuff that you can start to do the work on healing your relationship with food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's most of the advice I had in that article, I feel like was was giving yourself space to feel those feelings, mm-hmm. right? And like actually not push them aside. And even though they're uncomfortable, like allowing yourself space to grieve. Because I feel like as we enter that space, a lot of us are like, oh, this isn't normal. Like, why am I feeling these things? And uh, right. But I feel like that article is actually like my most popular of all time. And I think it's because it introduces to people. It gives them a name for what is already happening because I feel like the vast majority of people experience this. And, oh, you know, yeah. and then it also normalizes it of like, oh, I'm not the only one experiencing all of these, all of these different emotions. Right. Like it's not your fault. It's not something yeah. broken about you. It's actually a very common experience. Yeah. Yeah. I know that kind of reassurance is so healing, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then just giving yourself space to actually feel those feelings because in our society, we're just taught like, oh my God, uncomfortable feeling, push it down, push right. it down, push it down. Yeah. <laughs> Do anything to get away from it. <laughs> Which is definitely my personal experience. Oh, yeah, same. <laughs> so hard. Yeah. And yeah, when you first start letting go of dieting and disordered eating, I think there's a lot of uncomfortable feelings that rise up to the surface because mm-hmm. there's, you know, a way in which focusing on food and your body all the time takes a lot of space away from having to feel those feelings, right? It's like, it's an easy sort of checking out mechanism. Yeah, Yeah, that is so true. It's like, you know, you have to sort of go through this mourning process and like learn how to feel your feelings at the same time mm-hmm. when you're when you're first doing this which work. is a lot yeah. it's a lot yeah totally i felt fortunate like i had kind of discovered somatic experiencing and mind body techniques of like feeling emotions through the body before i found haze because i had pursued it for my pain stuff and having those tools in my toolbox to work on the emotions that, that were coming up as I moved through this. And those are the ones like that I, I mentioned a lot in that article. Mm-hmm. Like actually like finding that curiosity, like where am I feeling 
this grief in my body? Where is that anger? Where is that sadness? Those kinds of things. I know somatic experiencing was so huge for me too in my recovery. Like it was this sort of missing piece of connecting back to what am I actually feeling in a given moment? Because I would walk around all the time, like so tense, Mm -hmm. so angry, like not knowing what was actually happening and just sort of feeling like, got to get through the day, got to get through Mm -hmm. the day, you know, and like pushing myself and to sort of be given space to say like, okay, what are you feeling and where does it live in your body was profoundly healing and Mm -hmm. also like so scary at first, Mm -hmm. you know, to sort of be like, I'm going to be engulfed by these emotions because Mm -hmm. they feel so big because I have just not been focusing on them whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It takes practice to sort of get used to like actually feeling into your body. Yeah. And there's very understandably a lot of fear there because that's what we're taught in our society too. Talking about like, you know, we're taught about diet culture, but we're also taught that like emotions are unsafe and like unpleasant and are just going to stay around forever. Mm -hmm. I feel like that was the biggest thing I learned in that training was that actually like if you allow yourself to feel those emotions, they're kind of like a river. Like they want to keep moving and flowing and it can feel scary just pause and be with them but they actually they want to be felt and they want to like move and and evolve yeah totally yeah and it's sort of like the river was dammed up for a while Mm -hmm. (laughs) like so there's gonna be a big there's gonna be a big overflow at first but it does kind of like chill out after a while too yeah I found therapy so helpful with that I mean I think Mm -hmm. you know somatic experiencing techniques can be kind of scary to wade into on your own if you're especially if you're dealing with trauma like a trauma yeah, history yes. so working with a professional on it is super healing and Definitely. helpful yeah yeah and just having a therapist I managed to find someone who just wove it into all of her work and mm. it was really lovely that's awesome yeah that's yeah so great so how did you sort of make the transition from your own personal healing into doing yeah. this work what was that like you know it happened quite quickly because as soon as I discovered this and started integrating it in my own life, I was like, oh my God, why doesn't everyone know about this? Like, why? Like, everyone else (laughs) is just like, has no idea this existed. And I didn't either until, you know, just a couple of years ago. And I was just like, everyone needs to know this. And it just happened to coincide for me with burning out in my other job. So I had been a user experience designer and researcher for about 12 years in various agencies and had had all of these, yeah, it, it was just a very difficult environment for me. I was a people pleaser and had very high standards for myself, perfectionist, all of those qualities. And being in client services, trying to make people happy all the time, both my own bosses as well as myself, as well as my clients, it just eventually kind of chew me up and spit me out. And that happened like pretty much concurrently with my Hayes journey. And through the help of a really amazing therapist, I finally came to the awareness that I needed to make a change. And so we got to the point where I decided to take a little sabbatical, basically, mm-hmm. like burnout recovery time. And, you know, all the in the back of my mind was like, do I want to do this? Do I want to do this? And I just tried to leave space for that question to percolate. And then a few months into that sabbatical, it the, the answer was just so clear. Like, it was so scary, but also it was like, I need to do this. Like, I just felt so called to it. Mm-hmm. And... I'd already done the hard work of like kind of putting at least a pause on that other career, which made it more possible to just transition into this. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. That is hard to decide to leave something or to even take a break from it. It's like, yeah, that's that sense of investment that you were talking about earlier. You know, when you've invested so much into some career, some part of your life, like it takes a lot to say like, you know what, I'm going to walk away from this or at least take a pause and like take a step back and assess. To acknowledge that it's not working. Yeah. And, and it had been my identity too. You know, like I, I put everything into my job for 12 years. You know, I have a partner, but I don't have kids. And honestly, I didn't have that many hobbies. (laughs) And, you know, I, so to, to hang that up after like my whole community were the people doing that work. And yeah, it was me. Like I was, I was a professional and this working person and it was hard to give up. And I, you know, still consider like maybe dipping my toe back in that water, but it was really painful too. So when I started doing this work, it just felt like so like just I could breathe again and being able to like set my own hours and and not have to commute into Manhattan every day. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm so glad to not yeah. be doing that either. <laughs> Yes. I mean, anyone who's out there doing that, I feel for you. (laughs) I know. Totally. Yeah. I definitely feel for you. Yeah. But yeah, I fully identify with that too, as my former career in journalism, going to, you know, work in offices and being an editor and having this identity as a magazine person, you know, and Mm -hmm. then just recognizing like, this isn't working for me and this is kind of sucking my soul away Mm -hmm. when I had also put so much into that, you know, that was like such a thing that I hung my hat on and and to step away and say like I'm gonna go back to school and change you know train for this other career and change courses completely and like Mm -hmm. don't know what's on the other side it has been the most fulfilling thing I've ever done and I'm Mm -hmm. so glad I did it like and and I didn't completely leave it behind because I'm still using my media skills you know Mm -hmm. doing this podcast doing a website like writing and freelancing and stuff like that. So it never really left me, but it just had to take a different form. And I think I'm grateful that I was able to listen to like my body, really my intuition that was telling me like, this is killing you. Yeah, exactly. Like it was all the work that I had done up to that point, like the same thing, listening to my body, but also like haze itself. It's so compassionate and just Finding new compassion for myself and where I had been, I think that allowed me to hang up that particular hat and get to a place where that would be okay. And if I hadn't discovered Hayes and had that own, my, yeah, I just moved through all of that food stuff. I'm not sure that I would be where I am now. Well, like I literally wouldn't be because I chose to go into this work, but also just in terms of my own personal development, I'm not sure I would have been able to quit my job because it was the work that I did as part of Hayes. Um, you know, I'm using it as such a shorthand. Like, right, you yeah. Know, but, Help at every size, um, but like that, that larger whole, movement. Like, like, yeah, yeah, body liberation, but size acceptance, that activism, like all of, all of that stuff, I'm using it as a shorthand for that. The inner work of like realizing it was okay to just be me as I was allowed me to be like, okay, what I am is not someone like, you know, not someone who wants to just be beating up on herself all day about like this tiny mistake she made in this wireframe or whatever it was at the time. Yeah. And being able to transfer those skills, you know, as you exactly said with the journalism, like my whole job was learning about people and knowing them really deeply to design things in a way that be useful, usable, delightful to them. And now I can just translate those skills in a, in a different way. 
Yeah, in a way that's more nourishing to you personally yeah. too. Like so much more. Uh, yeah. When I was doing my work before, like for anyone who doesn't know what that is, like I was working with large companies to design these like massive websites. And I always felt like there was there was like the idea of doing good work. I could imagine, you know, even when I was in the research lab working with people who were using the things I was designing and I was like seeing them use it for the first time and like seeing like, oh, this is so easy. Like there was satisfaction there, but not the same kind of satisfaction as when I'm in the room with someone working on this really intimate stuff mm-hmm. and and seeing them like visibly relax when I say it's not your fault or, or things like that. It's yeah. just so much it's satisfying and it's just such a deeper way for me personally anyway. No, I hear that too. I, that's exactly how I feel. It's like when I was editing someone's story and they would be grateful that I had made their points clear or their prose really shine or whatever. Like that was satisfying, you know, and we would talk about ideas and have sort of meaningful conversations about that. But like, it's a different thing to talk to someone about their relationship with food and their personal journey, you Mm. know, and like, and I think, I mean, one of the most gratifying things to me about doing this work is kind of like what you said, where when you heal your relationship with food and your body, and when you do the work to understand it and sort of tune back into your intuition, that spills over into other areas of your life that you wouldn't have been able to tune into otherwise. Yeah. Because you sort of practice it and you get the hang of like, what does it feel like to trust your intuition? What does it feel like to trust your body's wisdom and to know that your body and your brain are working together on your behalf, Mm -hmm. you know, in this one realm of life. And then you can kind of sense that and notice when it's happening in other areas too. Yeah, absolutely. I trust myself around food, but I trust myself around so many other things beyond that now in a way that I I didn't before. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love it. <laughs> well, tell us more where people can find you online and learn more about your work and where your beautiful website is located. Oh. It's so gorgeous. <laughs> Thank oh. you. Um, so my company is called Made on a Generous Plan. And my website is generousplan.com. And yeah, having come from this field of digital design, web design, et cetera, I... It was really important to me to create a website that was going to be really, truly valuable to people, even beyond people who were my clients. So there's a lot of resources there, books and podcasts and videos to watch and and my own writing, of course, too. Yeah, which is wonderful. People should totally check out. And tell us about the story of the name, like Made on a Generous Plan, because I really love it. Yeah. So I found this little piece of prose in a book called Zaftig. So if anyone... It's an art book of women in larger bodies. And they, along with the art, they have little snippets of poetry and prose. And I found this quote in there. If you've been made on a generous plan, you have qualities that littleness can never possess. Who with any authority has said that slender persons are of the best type? Only carry yourself well, be reposeful and stately with a brain that sits supremely on the throne of your being, and you may come into your kingdom of power and love. Mm. And when I read that, it was just like, what? <laughs> and it's actually from this etiquette book from like 1897 or something oh, like that. And I'm sure the rest of the etiquette book was very, you know, problematic by our current right. standards in many ways. But it made me reflect on so many things, like the idea that like beauty norms are constantly changing and that, you know, these people back before the turn of the century were able to say like, there's nothing wrong with being in a larger body and thinking about how that's changed in the, in the you know, 120 years since then. 
yeah, so it made me think about that, um, but also just this idea of like raising people in larger bodies up to the same you know status as people in smaller bodies. It's not. It's funny, there was a video at the conference that we were just at that was a video of all these like awesome fat women dancing. And at the end, it was like curvy is the new thin or just oh, something like that. Like, no, like, I hate that stuff. Like, none of this is meant to like raise one body above another. It's but it, like what's important is raising all bodies up to the same level. Right. And so that's that's how I like to think of the phrase. It's not saying that people who are made on Jennifer Plan are better than those in slender bodies. It's just saying we have other, you know, we have qualities that are different and, and those are just as good. Yeah. So it just spoke to me and I was like, that's what it has to be. It's so beautiful. It, has to be. it really like warms my heart too. Yeah. Yeah. It's so lovely. Well, people should definitely check out your website, generousplan.com, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And I'm also, and yeah, I'm on Facebook and, and Instagram and Twitter and all the usual places as either some formulation of made on a generous plan or generous plan, <laughs> depending on the platform, sadly. Yeah. What yeah. was available. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's I'm awesome. Pretty easy to find. Yeah. We'll, we'll link to that in the show notes so people can find you and yeah. follow you all over the place. And I do one-on-one work both online and in my new home of Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And I'm also starting to do workshops and group programs and things like that too. So that's so fabulous. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. Thank you. Yeah. Me yeah. too. <laughs> Thank you so much, Meredith. It's such a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah. Such an honor. Thanks so much for having me. Aww. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to my pal Meredith Noble for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you're looking for some practical tips to start putting intuitive eating into practice in your life, grab my free quick start guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. It's like a bonus podcast episode to help you stop dieting and get free from the life thief. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. If you've gotten something out of the podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform, whatever that is. So sharing on the Apple platforms helps bring us up even higher in the podcast rankings so that more people can discover us and so that we can continue to drown out the pro-diet messages and keep rising higher in the health category. You can also leave us a nice rating and review in your podcast provider of choice, which is another way to help new listeners find us and just makes my day. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, head over to christyharrison.com slash 132. That's christyharrison.com slash 132. This episode was brought to you by Jules Sous Vide by Chef Steps. Great cooking is part art, part science. Jules Sous Vide takes care of the science, cooking meat, fish, and poultry to perfection with precise temperature control. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash Jewel and use the code FOODPSYCH to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E and use the code FOODPSYCH, all one word, at checkout. Food Psych is edited and engineered by Podcast Fast Track. Our administrative and community manager is Ashley Soroya, and our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by today's guest, Meredith Noble. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that person?